escape from Tartarus, one of the regions of hell, where the worst of souls, such as disobedient children, traitors, adulterers, and faithless ministers, were penned inside a wall of brass, hidden by a cloud of darkness, three times more gloomy than the obscurest night. In 1241, Russia, Poland, and Hungary fell. European leaders dropped their customary rivalries to exchange pleas for help and offers of cooperation in resisting the onslaught. And then, suddenly, the Mongols were gone, drawn back home by the death of the Khan, Genghis's son, Ogede. Now Europe knew they were there and needed to know more about them. The news was not encouraging. Two papal envoys to the Mongol capital, Karakorum in 1246 and 1253-5, brought back uncompromising demands from the Mongol Khans. Other envoys went to meet the Mongols in the Middle East, and as a result the West began to accumulate detailed, realistic information about the Mongols in Mongolia and in their new mini-empires in southern Russia and Persia. Meanwhile, in the Far East, a new world was emerging, Kublai's empire, of which the West knew nothing. Information should have come with the exchange of goods, for Mongol rule had opened several trade routes between Asia and Europe, but traders were mainly interested in trade, not travel and social comment, and certainly not in making the long trip eastward themselves. There were plenty of middlemen from whom goods could be bought, so why waste months and risk life and limb going to fetch them yourself? The journey overland meant eight months of toiling across mountain and desert, and the sea route was even worse. It would be another two hundred years before anyone sailed round southern Africa, so the voyage to the east could take up to two years, in constant danger from pirates, storms, and the collapse of hulls bound by ropes, a hazard mentioned by Marco Polo. No one wrote up the experience. So the first western visitors of note to Kublai's realm were the Polos, the brothers Niccolò and Maffeo, and young Marco. It was only after his death that Kublai became famous in Europe, and that was almost all thanks to Marco and his book. But both man and book are like will-o'-the-wisps, and the closer you look, the wispier they get. Marco tells us hardly anything about himself or his experiences en route. There are none of the agonies and fears felt by the two explorer priests who went overland to Mongolia before him, who starved, froze, and feared death many times. What did Marco feel? How did he escape this or that, rubber band, suffer and recover from such and such unnamed diseases? Was he on foot, on horse, or in a wagon? He doesn't say. He does not even seem to have a very clear purpose. This is many books in one, part geographical description, part guidebook, part merchant's handbook, without enough detail to serve well as any of them, but with plenty of incidental detail on social behaviour and history and legends and military matters and places that Marco heard about but never saw. Some claim him as a closet missionary, in his dismissal of all non-Christians as idolaters and his admiration of Kublai for his nominally Christian virtues. But that doesn't work either for he has nothing positive to say about Christianity, and praises Kublai for his tolerance of all religions. And the book, ghost-written with a writer of romances long after the event, should really be called The Books, plural, because the original vanished, and leaving about 120 manuscripts in many different languages, none the same as any other. So much is omitted. According to a note by a contemporary, a friar named Jacopo d'Aqui, that is, Jacob from present-day Aquiterme in northern Italy, 
Marco was asked by friends on his deathbed to correct the book by removing everything that went beyond the facts, to which his reply was that he had not told one half of what he had really seen. Of all the omissions, one in particular may have been of deeply personal significance. As we shall see, he gives more than the odd hint that he appreciates beautiful women, yet at an age when he would normally have been married, he was made to endure years of travel, which turned into years in the service of the Khan. Are we to assume that he remained celibate? Surely not. As anyone, man or woman, but especially man, travelling in Mongolia today knows, Mongolian women are very different from their Chinese counterparts. In looks, they seem to span all Asia, with hints of Russian, even European features. This range seems to include more than its fair share of startling beauty, which combines with equally startling self-assurance and lack of inhibition. And Marco saw women of all sorts. When he arrived at